We humans have been trying to understand the universe and our place within it for as long as, well, for as long as we've been human. We don't have all the answers yet, but we are getting closer. In fact, you and I have the potential to understand more about the world and our place within it than literally anyone who has ever lived. So join us as we try to put the story of our existence together piece by piece. We can't give you all the answers, but what we can give you is the straight up science. I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school, we had a sandpit and it was epic. The sandpit was where I learned many valuable life lessons, like that it's a lot harder to dig to China than you might think. I also learned that there isn't oil under the ground in southern Ontario, or at least if there is, it's buried more than two feet below the surface. But one other experiment that I, and probably most other kids tried, was producing craters by throwing rocks into the sand as hard as I could. This was arguably one of the first experiments I ever did, and the results were surprising. No matter how hard I tried, I could never make a crater that looked like one of the craters on the moon. After all, moon craters are almost always these nice, smooth round holes in the surface. Kind of like what you see in a tub of ice cream after taking out a delicious scoop. But my sandpit craters were nothing like that. They just looked like small, irregular divots. At first I thought my oddly shaped craters were due to the fact that I was using oddly shaped rocks. In other words, things in space are round, so they produce round craters. But that's not true at all. In fact, most of the objects in space that collide with the moon are small, irregularly shaped rocks like the ones I was using. Okay, so what about gravity? Is it because the moon has less gravity that somehow the craters end up being nice and round? Wrong again. There aren't a whole lot of visible craters on the surface of the Earth, but the ones that we can see are also nice and round, meaning gravity has nothing to do with it. Although this experiment, if you can call it that, was just child's play, the results do demand an explanation. Why does a rock hitting a soft surface produce perfect craters in one case and not in another? The real answer lies in speed. I could throw a rock pretty hard as a kid, if I do say so myself, but even the best Major League Baseball pitchers can only throw at about 100 miles per hour. For comparison, a meteorite often strikes at speeds in excess of 100,000 miles per hour. At speeds like that, the impactor and the surface rock are absolutely pulverized during the collision. So let's consider the case of an asteroid striking the Earth, and we'll look at the impact from the point of view of both of them. We'll start with the asteroid. Asteroids are basically just gigantic, glorified versions of the rocks that I used to throw as a kid. When an asteroid strikes the surface of the Earth, it slows down from 100,000 miles per hour to basically zero in a very short period of time. If you've ever watched footage of crash test dummies in a car, it's basically that on steroids. If those steroids have somehow also been taking steroids. As the front of the asteroid strikes the Earth, it quickly slows down to basically zero, causing all of the material behind it, which by the way is still moving at 100,000 miles per hour, to compress up against it. The forces involved in this kind of compression cause the asteroid to be completely obliterated. If you were to watch this process in slow motion, it would be kind of like seeing a water balloon hitting a brick wall. In both cases, the material at the front slows to a standstill and everything behind it mashes up against it. With nowhere to go, the water in a water balloon will be forced sideways with enough force to tear open the balloon. The same thing will happen to our asteroid, only, and this is important, the surface of the Earth will no longer be flat when the sides of the asteroid blow out. 
To see why, let's look at the impact from the Earth's perspective. The surface, which is also made of rock, will suddenly find itself under a lot of pressure when the asteroid strikes. The rock at the very top will feel it first, and will be pushed downward as it's hit by the asteroid. However, as you may know, rock isn't exactly the most forgiving material when it comes to bending and stretching. So the rock beneath the surface will resist that compression. As a result, the rock near the top will feel pressure from the asteroid above and from the unforgiving rock below and will try to expand out sideways, just like the water balloon. However, there's also rock on the sides, which won't take too kindly to being pushed around. Basically, the only place where there's room for the rock to expand is up. Therefore, the result will be a sort of bowl shape with the outer rim raised above the rest of the surface. Okay, now we're ready to bring the asteroid back into the scene. So within this bowl, we have an asteroid that is also trying to expand out sideways. However, the surrounding rock won't give it much room to expand and will therefore redirect it upwards as well. The final result is that material from the asteroid, initially traveling straight down, will crash into material in front of it, causing it to redirect towards the side, where it will then encounter the walls of a newly forming crater in the surface of the Earth and be redirected upward over the lip. As it does this, it smooths out the surface beneath it, leaving a nice, smooth, round crater. A good analogy would be something like pouring milk from standing height into an empty bowl sitting on the floor. As it hits the bottom, the milk will be redirected sideways and will follow the edge of the bowl upwards, basically causing it to spill all over the place. What are you doing with my milk? Great, so we now know why craters tend to form these nice, smooth bowl shapes, but we are still missing something. Some of the larger craters will actually develop a small peak right in the middle. Now this seems counterintuitive at first. After all, isn't it the center that gets pummeled downward the hardest during the impact? However, we have to remember that the amount of heat generated when two clumps of rock collide at 100,000 miles per hour is absolutely staggering. After larger impacts, the heat generated is enough to make the surface into a thick molten rocky soup. Once a nice bowl-shaped crater forms, the molten rock will tend to flow back into it under gravity in order to fill the gap. As it meets in the middle, it has really nowhere to go but up, forming a central peak once the rock solidifies. It's this same principle that allows you to make a wicked splash when you cannonball into a pool. If you watch closely, you'll notice that there really isn't much of a splash when someone first hits the water. The real splash comes just after, when all the water in the pool tries to fill the hole left by the cannonballer. As water rushes towards the center, it collides with the water coming from all the other directions and has nowhere to go but up, creating that oh-so-satisfying splash. That's our show. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please do leave us a comment and rating on iTunes. We're always looking for ideas for new episodes and ways to improve the show. For more science articles and information on the show, please visit www.thestraightupscience.com. Straight Up Science is written and produced by Curtis McEwen and Justin Miniacci. Music written and performed by 3X. Audio production and post-production provided by Justin Miniacci. 